Hello and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your Candyman Can host, Gary, here to tell you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other sweets. I am joined by my sugary wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Hi, Gary. And how are you today? Pretty good. So this is going to be about candy, not Candyman? It's going to have a lot of candy involved in it, yes. Okay, good. Candyman, you can't say it, you know, what is it, five times you can't say Candyman? One, two, three. Can't say Candyman five times or Candyman. Uh, oops. And so I will have to finish the rest of this episode on my own. But before you go, Goldie Ann, do you know what candy does when it tells a joke? It unravels. I don't know. It's Snickers. Jesus. God. I like how you tried. Now, today's episode involves chilling stories about child loss and disappearances. These may be upsetting to some of our listeners. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little, but listener discretion is always advised. And with that, the primary source of information about the Candy Lady of Texas came from multiple internet sites having different versions that I've put together into a story that kind of combines everything that I've read. Some are facts, while others are urban legends. And over the years, it has become difficult to separate the two. I will let you decide at the end of the episode. But first, a word from our sponsor. Welcome back. At the turn of the century, Texas was facing a crisis. Children were disappearing, and only thing being left behind were wrapping papers of small candy treats. It was believed that they knew who their suspect was, but they couldn't prove it. The story is tragic both for her and then for the children. Join us today as we talk about the Candy Lady of Texas. So Goldie, sounds kind of creepy already. It is going to be a very creepy story. Do you have a favorite candy treat? Um, Reese's. Uh, definitely peanut butter and chocolate is always going to be a hit you knew that i did well what's my favorite um it depends you like bit of honey that is probably my and favorite what of all is either time. what mary jane's is what it is well yeah. the mary jane's are very similar to that so mary jane's definitely ever bit of honey because i can never find those <laughs> i know bit of honey is kind of tough to find anymore you have to go to one of those old-fashioned candy stores which kind of fits in with today's story Chapter 1, A Dream Come True In the distance, the sun hovered, sinking into the horizon. Its fiery rays cast shadows over the sea of flowers. A cotton mist arose, hung in the air, and sparkled in the sun like bits of diamond. In the cotton field, a young girl was picking some of the white fluff her hair tied up in a bandana and dirt smeared across her cheek. There was sweat running down her brow as she looked up into the sky. 
The pink blush of the sun like a promise of tomorrow and the cotton reflected clouds in the sky. Clara Crane was born in Texas in 1871 as the only daughter of a cotton farmer. Her father's farm was a sea of the waxy white blossoms, acres of cotton ready to be picked. The odors of the farm mingled together, soil, fertilizer, cotton, manure, in the fresh morning air. Want to know a bit of fun fact? I'm always up for knowing fun facts. I used to pick cotton. Did you? Yep. When? When I was little. Very, very little. I could barely remember it. Because my, my family is actually farmers in Louisiana. And my aunt, no, at that point it would have been my grandfather, my papa, had cotton fields. And me and my dad, he'd let me go out there with him and I'd pick some cotton. And you'd, have, you'd relate to Clara and working out in the late fields. Now Clara was a determined child. When she was old enough to pick cotton, she worked longer and more diligently than most farmhands. She was determined to make something more out of her life. She wanted to leave behind the back-breaking labor of the fields and see what lay behind. At 17, she married the much older Leonard Crane, who was a tall, skinny man with tanned skin and dark, crinkly eyes. His hair was a mix of gray and black already, slicked back so his eyes could be seen. His face was made crooked by years of caustic laughter and professional disdain. As a local lawyer and businessman, he was able to take Clara away from living the life on the farm. He provided her with exquisite luxury, introducing her to cultured society and helping her pursue music lessons. They moved into a large brick house near the courthouse and became leading community members. Clara took advantage of Leonard's resources to further her education and attended lectures at the nearby college and meeting many influential people. Her life changed drastically when she married Leonard. And while she enjoyed the luxuries of those new home and lifestyle, there was something missing. Clara was used to long hours alone. Leonard was frequently away between his law practice, business affairs, and the cotton fields he had produced. Clara was left to the large house with its vast halls and echoing rooms. She tried to keep busy with music lessons and social engagements, but something deep inside her remained empty. She wanted something that money couldn't buy the unconditional love of a child. The young woman yearned for a baby to love and care for, someone who could keep her company in her large empty house. Eventually, they did have one small child, a little girl whom they named Marcella. Marcella was born soon after their move into their new home and full of life and energy. Clara spent hours looking down at the infant's pale skin with wisps of white blonde hair. She would caress the baby's cheek, soft and warm to the touch, like she was born from a ray of sunshine. The baby looked back with innocent blue-green eyes. A small smile played on her lips as Clara's soft voice sang to her every night. It was as if Clara was living out her very own fairy tale.
Chapter 2 The Tragedy in the Fields The worst fears imaginable occurred in 1893, before Marcella could even have reached her fourth birthday. Leonard, his face a mask of remorse, returned late one night from the fields. Marcella, who should have been in bed for hours already, was last seen running outside with an old straw hat on her head and a rope clenched between her teeth like she was playing at being a horse. Marcella's lifeless body was found at the bottom of an irrigation ditch the next morning. Her soiled dress lay twisted around her. Red splotches marred the hem and ran up her waist, where a pale scar rose from her skin. Water had washed away any sign that she struggled against the water or that the mud had pulled her into the earth. The tragedy prompted hushed whispers in the town that Leonard had been drinking before the incident, and he shouldn't have probably have driven home the horse buggy in his condition. <laughs> Clara was broken-hearted and struggled with a deep sadness that she had never experienced before. Despite wanting to protect her husband from his pain, she couldn't help but resent him for how things had turned out. Some days, Clara would lock herself in her bedroom and cry, consumed by conflicting emotions of love and hate. On other days, she'd wander out into the cotton fields looking for solace in the soft embrace of the plants. She'd sit there for hours, stroking each flower and letting its general perfume fill her lungs. People said, that she was searching for her daughter in the warm wind that blew through the fields, hoping to hear her voice again. Clara and Leonard tried to move on after the tragedy, but it was impossible to forget it. They both had to live with the guilt of what had happened. Leonard for driving drunk, and Clara for being unable to keep her daughter safe. Months of despair turned into years of anger and resentment further distancing the couple from each other. Clara's grief took over her life. She dedicated her days to caring for the land, trying to find solace in its beauty, as if she could bring Marcella back by simply loving it more intensely than ever. The two eventually drifted apart, their marriage slowly crumbling away until nothing was left but an empty shell of what it used to be. As they continued living like this, neither knew what else they could do. How could they return to the way things were before Marcella's death? Sadness began consuming them both until all that remained was a dull ache of grief that never truly disappeared. Chapter 3 Insanity in 1895, it was reported that Clara had killed her husband, Leonard. Clara's hand had moved possessed of its own over the stove, fast as a striking cobra, as she mixed every ingredient into a large copper pot. Her face was a mask of concentration, her eyes focused on the concoction, as if she was staring into her own soul. She drizzled vanilla into the caramel mixture, oblivious to the world around her. The mixture smelled of sugar, spices, and sadness, 
a combination of emotions that hung around her like an invisible halo. That evening, she brought the bowl of homemade caramels to sit on the table next to her husband. Her face showed no sign of the poison mixed within the sweets. The news of Leonard's death quickly spread through the small town. Many people whispered behind closed doors, speculating about what had happened and how Clara could have done such a thing. Clara herself refused to speak, maintaining an inscrutable silence. As the investigation into her husband's death continued, the many bottles of poison were discovered, still sitting on the kitchen table next to the mixing bowl. The evidence was overwhelming and damning, and the authorities soon charged her with murder. At the trial, Clara refused to speak in her own defense. She withdrew deeper inside of herself. However, it seemed that the jury already knew what had happened, and she was quickly found guilty of murder. Fearing for her life, her lawyer argued for leniency by pleading insanity due to extreme grief over the loss of her daughter, Marcella. Ultimately, it worked, and Clara was given a lenient life sentence at the North Texas Lunatic Asylum instead of execution. Clara would spend years at the asylum in near silence, rarely speaking or interacting with anyone else there. She spent most of her time tending to a small flower garden in front of her cell window, growing daisies and other mysterious plants, like those she used to pick with Marcella when she was alive. The only thing that brought her any solace were the simple gifts from nature, a reminder of happier days that had gone by. A year later, a doctor noted that the staff had found Clara's doll under her bed. It had been made from torn bed sheets, which she had sewn into the shapes of a shirt, trouser, and hat with a stick for a neck. The sleeves were empty, but the shape of a face was drawn on the material with ash. The other patients would whisper about Clara late at night. They said they heard singing and low whispers coming from her room. It seemed like she was talking to someone, but no one ever came out of her room, and she never had any visitors. Some speculated that she was speaking to her daughter, but what they said made no sense to anyone else in the ward. Soon, the staff observed a strange mix of curiosity and sorrow every time Clara spoke as if speaking to an invisible companion. In 1899, four years after her conviction and being placed in the hospital, she was released due to overcrowding at the asylum. She was said to be charming and soft-spoken, and even though she had committed murder, she was considered a good release candidate. Reports say that she had a certain poise about her, a gentle voice that put people at ease. So the doctors thought it would be best to release her, and no one knew where she ended up, 
and without any kind of aftercare or support system in place in those days, she vanished from the face of the world. That's a pretty good story so far. Chapter 4 Candy on the Windowsill. Oh, no, it gets creepy. Here is definitely where the sad story becomes terrifying. Around 1903, children near Clara's hometown in Texas started going missing. The townsfolk said it was a band of gypsies who had come to spend the winter in the mountains, but others knew better. At sunset, the children on the block in town waited eagerly for a nightly surprise that they didn't tell their parents about. They raced to their windowsills when they heard a telltale thump. The neighborhood whispered stories of an unseen benefactor who left homemade candy and caramels in hand-decorated wrappers each night to the windows of the children. The bedrooms would be full of the aroma of sugar and chocolate. There would also be a hint of rose and lavender as well. Children would eagerly crinkle the wrapper as they tore into their nightly sweets. It was their most cherished part of the lives of chores on the farm. The small sweets were like a little piece of Christmas that came to the room every evening. Some said that after receiving the candy for a while, the person leaving the candy would then start writing notes on the wrappers. Short messages telling the children how sweet they were and how nice it would be to play with them if they could come out into the night air under the full moon. The words were as sweetly thought out as the candy and promised a life of fun and sugary treats. But then, children disappeared during the nights, stolen from their homes. Every few days, a child would disappear without any trace. They would be there when the parents tucked them in in the evening, but all traces of them were gone in the morning. The windows would be open and empty. Cushions would be picked up and tossed to the floor. And the few meager toys would be collected into a box to be left forgotten. The marks on the pillows where the child laid their heads were still visible, as if someone had sponged away all traces of them with a sponge. The townspeople were in a state of panic and people hastily searched for clues and evidence to unravel the mysterious candy wrappers and what had happened to their children. The police sheriff searched every inch of the town but couldn't find a single clue that would lead them to the source of the sweets or whoever it was that was taking their children. Some had reported seeing a woman matching the description of Clara as they had heard whispers of her nocturnal visits around their town. They knew about the stories that she had been seen with candy bags at all night hours, but no one could prove it. After weeks of searching, they still needed progress on their investigation. One day, something strange happened. A sweet smell started emanating from an abandoned shack on the edge of an old field. This was the same house that Clara used to visit during her release from prison years ago. 
The farmer who owned the land had permitted the poor woman to stay there when she turned up in town a few months prior. His heart had went out to the poor girl, seeing her so heartbroken and alone. He had known of the tragedies that she had suffered through, as rumors had spread from Clara's hometown to all of the neighboring farms. The shack was no bigger than a one-bedroom house. An old bed and table sat on one side of the room and a fireplace on the other. A few empty pots and pans were scattered around the floor, and one giant cracked window was all that allowed natural light to stream through the walls. The kindly farmer had provided her with food and wood for a fire to keep her warm, and every so often he would check in on her, and each time he found her quietly singing to herself or busying herself over a large copper pot set over the fire. He kept this up for several weeks until one night she just wasn't there gone without a trace. The sheriff went out with the farmer and a posse of the townspeople. This included the missing children's parents. When they arrived at the shack, they found it still abandoned, but one candy wrapper was cast in the corner of the room. The mob spread out, searching the cotton field with great care. The farmer had a sick feeling in his gut. He knew that this was the same field where Clara had been seen walking not too long ago. He kept looking until his search led him straight to an old oak tree at the edge of the farm. As he stepped closer to the tree to inspect it, he noticed something peculiar. His heart froze for several tiny human teeth were scattered around its roots. Some were as clean and white as pearls, others were blackened and jagged, and some were even green with rot. How does that work? In teeth, what way? Teeth don't do that. They don't rot in uh, green. Well, haven't you heard of uh, sugary treats are supposed to rot your teeth? Oh, yeah, never mind. I forgot about those. So I'm thinking, yeah, the candy probably had an effect on these teeth that the farmer found. The farmer immediately called for help, and they found more teeth scattered throughout his fields and along a nearby path that led into the woods. Rapidly, they followed this path and eventually stumbled upon a small clearing, but there was still no sign of the missing children or of Clara. The sheriff demanded results, and he recruited more people to help him look for Clara. He was determined to find her and avenge the missing children. Together, they spread out into the woods every day and every night. Until one evening, the sheriff was heard shouting off in the distance that he had spotted her and was in pursuit. Alone, he chased after the woman into the dark. The rest of the townsfolk had lost sight of the pair and had to wait for hours for some word from the sheriff. It was not until dawn that they would venture out and follow the trail. 
As the light from the morning illuminated the area, they stumbled upon a comprehensive clearing. At the very center lay a deep black abyss. The sheriff's body was at the bottom of the pit, pale and motionless. His eyes had been pierced through with sharpened forks, and his pockets were stuffed full with homemade candy. Nice. Despite all of this, there was still no sign of Clara or the children. The town was left in shock and awe over the disappearance. Nothing was ever found. No clues were ever uncovered. And no return of any of the children ever appeared again. The townsfolk would continue to search for the missing children and Clara to no avail. And in time, their desperate search slowly disappeared until they finally gave up and it ended. However, from time to time, a Texas town would report a series of evenings in which the excited children would find candies wrapped in brightly colored wrappers on their windowsills at evening. There would be messages of promises of a better life and it always ended with a rash of disappearances. No Clara or child would be seen. So how long did this go on? I'm glad you asked because chapter five, the candy lady of today. Oh shit. Now today, the tale of the candy lady has become an infamous urban legend. If the stories are true, She's still out there and still collecting children with candies. Children whisper her stories in hushed tones with darkened eyes, and parents warn their children to avoid strangers offering candy. Older people in some areas of Texas remember the account when they were growing up. The facts that Clara Crane is actual she was married to Leonard and lost a daughter, Marcella. She then slipped into despair and was proven that she had murdered her husband by poisoning the candy she made for him. She was convicted, sent to an asylum, and released shortly afterwards. She then vanished from the public, and that is where her tale became the story of the candy lady. A cautionary reminder not to trust the generosity of strangers. It serves as a reminder that danger can lurk behind even the sweetest treats. And while no trace of Clara or the children were ever found, her story is an eternal warning not to succumb to temptation too easily. Could Clara still be out there since the turn of the century? No. Could some of her children that she collected be passing on from generation after generation and becoming the new candy lady. Perhaps. The legend of the candy lady has evolved, with each generation adding new details and interpretations. Some say she represents unchecked human greed, while others believe she lures innocent children away so she can keep them for herself. Whatever her true purpose, her story persists through all these years as a powerful lesson for us all. Wow, that's pretty cool. So when you think about it, 
either Clara is immortal, Clara is a ghost, or the children that she's kidnaps pass down the candy lady from generation to generation. Or this is just an urban legend meant to scare children not to take candy from strangers. You want some candy, little girl? I know. That's kind of a ongoing story that every parent has told their children to watch. Stranger out. Danger! And this is the classic Stranger Danger story. Maybe she married Candyman. I have not seen that episode of the movie uh, series yet. Well, they're still coming out, so. Yeah, they're time. still possible. In fact, I was looking for movies that involved the Candy Lady, and there is one in the works. Really? Yes. In, it was set in pre-production on IMDb. So when that comes out, I will definitely have to check it out and see what kind of movie they make based off of this Candy Lady. I wonder when story. that was put up, though. There's a lot of them that say that. I know. Sadly. <laughs> well, uh, so what did you think of the story? I, I said I liked it. It was, it was really good. It's my kind of story. <laughs> I figure it would be. For me, uh, it has everything that would terrify you. You feel bad for the villain, which is in this case is Claire, because she lost her daughter because the husband got drunk and accidentally killed Marcella. But then she goes, you know, totally crazy, and she becomes the villain, and is she kidnapping children for herself away from other parents? But, you know, whose fault really was it? Shouldn't she have put that child to bed? <laughs> Who's going to question the insanity of a woman who uh, talks to a doll and imaginary people? She wasn't the same before that. Not since the death of her daughter. That's what I mean. She didn't put the baby to bed. So the baby was still outside playing when drunk daddy shows up and runs her over. Agreed. And she suffered for it to the end of her days. They were both felt bad. Mm. Then It's not a happy ending in any way. No. But... Should you see a piece of candy wrapped in bright paper on your windowsill? I'll eat it. Sorry. For the rest of the sane world, perhaps you should consider who or what placed it there. You might become the next victim of the Candy Lady of Texas. <laughs> now, before we go, I want to remind everyone that we are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about the Candy Lady of Texas. Do you believe that there is still a candy lady stalking children and tempting them with pieces of caramel and chocolates? You can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast, and we are also on Instagram, and plus we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share your stories. We hope you enjoyed our tale of the candy lady of Texas, and we'll come again for another episode. But until then, enjoy a sweet treat now and then, and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs>